Hello and welcome to David's Politics Show. Almost two years have passed since Russia's full-scale reinvasion of Ukraine in 2022. To take stock of the current military and political situation, I'm delighted to be joined once again by the noted Russia and Ukraine expert, Dr. Andreas Umland, from the Stockholm Center for Eastern European Studies at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Andreas, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks, David, for having me. Honored and delighted. So, uh, Andreas, I'd like to I'd like to begin by, as we did in fact last year um, at the one year mark, um, by asking you to to just give us uh, a tour d'horizon of where you think we are now, two years into this war. Um, maybe we can start with the with the military situation on the front line, where where you think things stand at the moment. Of course, when we spoke last um, last year, there was still a lot of hope for the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive in the summer. We now know how that went, um, but give us your sense of where where you think we are now, and then um, and then the politics of it all. Um, the politics, of course, in Ukraine itself, um, to some extent in Russia and um, and in the West. I wouldn't comment maybe in detail about the military situation. I'm not enough of an expert on that, and there are you know better um, qualified people to do that. Uh, for instance, at our Stockholm Center for Eastern European Studies, we have um, a Russian military expert, Alexander Goltz, who um, has written already a lot of um, perceptive analyses on this. Mm-hmm. But the um, I think the larger political and strategic context here uh, is that um, there were two misunderstandings, um, I think, on the Western and Ukrainian side Um, stemming from the 2022 uh, developments. The first one, I think, was the idea that that Russia is actually weaker than it um, looked and um, the poor performance of Russia in 2022 and the ability of Ukraine to uh, reconquer or better uh, is to say to liberate again uh, about half of the territory that Russia had initially um, conquered, um, then perhaps led to uh, assumptions uh, about the counteroffensive that turned out to be untrue. In a way, mm-hmm. one could argue that last year Ukraine was, and the West as well, uh, supporting uh, Ukraine, they were fighting the last uh, fight, so to say, the 2022 uh, war. But by 2023, uh, Russia had adapted and then prepared itself, uh, had prepared itself for the counteroffensive, and um, then uh, was able to um, to prevent uh, this being um, successful uh, on the land. One has to make this limitation here. Uh, on the sea, uh, 2023 has been uh, rather um, uh, successful for Ukraine. Uh, perhaps most visible with the uh, resumption of Ukrainian exports via the Black Sea um, without um, an agreement behind it with Russia um, and the creation of a uh, of a transportation corridor uh, by Ukraine and its uh, Western partners that is now functioning actually uh, apparently very well. Um, the other, I think. Um, 
big mistake was uh, that we had uh, for the last two years a continuing discussion about um, some sort of agreement, negotiations, uh, diplomatic solution that could end the war before um, Ukraine would gain the upper hand uh, militarily. And uh, we have still this ambivalence basically in all Western societies um, about the support for Ukraine and these sort of competing um, formulations as long as it takes, uh, as much as it takes, um, and uh, these sort of concepts that uh, at some point uh, Moscow will come to its mind and then uh, will agree to some sort of uh, agree, uh, uh, deal that uh, for Kiev would be then also acceptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just published a, a longer piece on this in the National Interest where I outlined the uh, six, as I see them, reasons why such a such a deal is at least currently not possible. And um, so I think that was also a big hindrance for the formulation of uh, of better policies and implementation than also of better um, military uh, support for Ukraine uh, during the last year. And um, I think now people are actually coming to um, uh, understand that better. And um, although it now looks actually politically um, rather complicated uh, with the support for Ukraine, especially in the US, mm-hmm. the experts community and the, the people who are sort of uh, evaluating that have now, I think, come uh, around in, in in seeing the larger uh, dimension also of this war. And that's why I'm sort of slightly optimistic that we will get new new rounds of, uh, of sanctions and new rounds of um, uh, deliveries of um, military hardware and perhaps also more advanced military hardware uh, to Ukraine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I want to I want to pick up something you mentioned. Uh, a very interesting point you mentioned at the beginning about, in a se- in a sense, maybe last year, a kind of misunderstanding of the kind of warfare that was that would be required in 20, 2023 as opposed to twenty twenty two. It 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 always strikes me, um, you know, the similarities between the kind of fighting that we're seeing um, in Ukraine and also the evolution of the fighting and the Western Front in, in World War I, which also began as a war of maneuver uh, and also ended up getting bogged down in uh, the attritional fighting that we, that we tend to remember more and that we tend to associate precisely with the middle years, 1916, it's at, you know, Verdun, the Somme, etc. But it started out um, as a war of maneuver and also a war in which the defensive had the upper hand, in which going on, and on the offensive precisely because you didn't have um, at least until the later stages of the war, you didn't have air power, essentially, um, meant huge artillery barrages, huge casualties, etc. And we're seeing, interestingly, in a weird kind of way, 100 years later, something, uh, something similar. But um, looking, looking back now, if, if, we, if we kind of take that analogy, um, we think, you know, okay, maybe we're at sort of the mid-year point, perhaps, in, in, in this war, who knows. But um, looking back now on you know, those, those early months, um, and even into the, the beginning of 2023, do you think it's fair to say at this point that overall the West, and here I mean really primarily, obviously the US and, and, and Europe, um, did we do too little too late? 
Yes, absolutely. I think that is also now uh, acknowledged. That is my sort of uh, slight optimism uh, that I mentioned, uh, that at least what I see, for instance, in Germany now, there is a change of mood and uh, a better understanding that the um, support, if you decide to support Ukraine, has to be more resolute because uh, if you do it only sort of half-heartedly, then... um, this doesn't make sense. Right. There's almost no point. <laughs> yeah, it's un, it's unstrategic. It's, you know, then in a way you one could even, you know, provocatively then argue uh, then better don't support at all and and mm. uh, but but this sort of half-hearted support especially since the countries have uh, actually um, the weaponry um, we see that with the um, with the Baltic countries um, for instance that have uh, supported Ukraine in terms of the percentage of their of their uh, GDPs uh, much more than the West European uh, countries, although since these are uh, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia are small countries, so the overall, the ap- in absolute terms, the right. support is of course not very significant. But these countries have a, a different strategic calculation here. I've... Um, commented on this uh, in on Twitter or on X, um, saying that most of these strategists in the West, in Western Europe, they believe in the existence of two Russias. So there's one Russia that is fighting a war with Ukraine, and then there is another Russia uh, that is threatening them. And that's why they have to keep their weaponry in their countries to defend uh, Russia number two. The Baltic countries um, believe that there's only one Russia, and what you need is one defeat of this one Russia, and that will make uh, the Baltic countries uh, more secure. And that's why they decide to um, to support uh, Ukraine in this uh, uh, in this uh, relatively large uh, uh, dimension. Although you would think that they should be um, the least uh, supportive out of their own security interests, but they they have a different strategic vision of their own st- um, security interests. Uh, I think a more rational one, um, a less uh, uh, emotional one, and uh, a cooler calculation of what is actually at hand uh, in the Russian-Ukrainian war. Um, to return to your um, to your comparison with World War One, um, I think something that I have not heard so far is um, the comparison here, not only of the course of uh, World War One, but also of the end of World War One, as perhaps in a very abstract, on a way, on a high level of generality level uh, way, in that um, Germany signed uh, the Versailles Treaty, although the German territory was not actually occupied uh, Correct, by yeah. any of the of the powers so germany experienced a defeat although germany was not invaded actually by mm-hmm. by its enemies it had its troop on um, on foreign territory and so that could be perhaps also in a way suggestive to the way in which the um russo-ukrainian war may end uh, before um, actually, everything is liberated. That then, eventually, in a treaty uh, that would be to a certain degree imposed on Russia, uh, Russia would uh, 
go away from all of the uh, turn, um, uh, get out of all of the Ukrainian territory without having uh, been, um, uh, you know, thrown out by the Ukrainian army, uh, let's say, from uh, Crimea. Mm -hmm. So that is also, uh, I think, yet another um, uh, comparison with World War One. Although in other ways, of course, the this comparison does not. Um, it, it can also mislead uh, the um, the um, assessment of the current war. It's uh, hundred years ago, so it's um, sure. it's it's uncomparable. Yeah. So um, I mean, one can one can. Uh, you know, do these comparisons endlessly. Um, sometimes I'm a bit afraid of these comparisons because they can then, um, they are actually miscomparing uh, uh, this conflict. Um, uh, especially here in uh, sort of continental Western Europe, we have these peace and conflict studies that are very much shaped by the study of, uh, of ethnic conflict, of uh, civil wars, and of basically military confrontations that are not uh, comparable to the Russo-Ukrainian war. So, um, you know, so for instance, I know only of very little studies of, um, let's say, Iraq's annexation of Kuwait and then the liberation of Ku Kuwait. Um, that is a reference, a reference that is only very rarely, uh, in fact, I've never heard it uh, made um, here in Germany where I'm currently Mm -hmm. um, but that would be the obvious, um, to, to me at least, the most obvious comparison, uh, an annexation that then is reversed by an international coalition. Um, and we have here also an annexation, and what we need is an international coalition to reverse the annexations. But for some reason, most of the, um, the comparativists, they do not see the similarity here, and they, they go into these uh, comparisons with... Uh, with ethnic conflict, civil wars, and uh, I would say uncomparable uh, um, situations. Right. Yeah. No. It's it's a it's a very interesting point you bring up, which is you know what what to do with history, right? How to how to think with with and through history. I think it's it's essential to have something to think with, as you know previous examples, because history does tend to to rhyme in a certain sense. But of course, that that is that is precisely the difficulty, right? How much do you, um, how much weight do you place on on these analogies? Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, how you see, you know, how 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 you would evaluate um, Europe's overall policy um, in terms of the in terms of its support um, for Ukraine over the past two years. I remember when we spoke last year, I I was perhaps a bit more critical um, than you were of Germany, especially. Um, but it seems to me that, you know, even though rhetorically the um, the posture really hasn't changed that much, I think even in terms of the of, of public support, I, I think it's pretty much um, still there on a kind of nominal basis for um, for Ukraine. But um, in, in terms of the actual on the ground support for um, for for the for the Ukrainian um, armed forces and for the Ukrainian state more generally. It seems to me that the EU has been found wanting yet again. Um, the most kind of glaring example of, of that is the, uh, the famous slash infamous promise to deliver a million shells, 155 millimeter shells um, by March of this year, which um, the EU has, hasn't even got close to. It's more like half of that maybe, um, and supposedly the rest by the end of the year. But in any event, and then there's... Um, just to give another kind of factoid um, on Twitter, uh, 
I can't I can't bring myself to say X, Andreas. So I'm just going to say Twitter. Uh, but on Twitter, um, Robin Brooks, who's the uh, former chief economist at the uh, IIF, he regularly posts very sort of sardonic tweets about um, the, 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 as he puts it, the glorious history of Georgian or Armenian or, or Kazakhstani customs and, you know, talks about how uh, mysteriously, you know, German, but also Polish and, and even, you know, Baltic countries' exports to, to these countries um, went up dramatically, like thousand percent, um, you know, since 2022. And it's obvious that this stuff is being shipped, transshipped to, to Russia. So um, it seems to me that, you know, the, the EU hasn't really um, uh, risen to the, to the kind of world historical challenge of the moment. It's not taking seriously enough what is going on here, which is a fundamental attack on the very fabric of the international order on which the EU itself ultimately depends um, for its very existence. But uh, tell, tell us how you, how, you, how you would evaluate all of that. Yeah, the, the odd situation, as I at least perceive it um, currently here in Germany, that uh, in the discourse uh, among experts, even among politicians, civil society activists, diplomats, and so, and so on, has advanced rather well and we have now a perception uh, that this uh, here in Germany that this is a larger war this is not only about Ukraine this is about the West uh, the international system the European Union and so on but uh, somehow this um, discursive advance has not yet led to um, uh, strategic and political conclusions that I would think are uh, very obvious to make and what you mentioned already um, is exactly what what is missing that we don't have yet uh, sufficient secondary so-called secondary uh, sanctions against um, non-russian um, actors uh, governmental or uh, business actors that uh, help Russia to circumvent the sanctions that we have not enough delivery of uh, uh, ammunition and armament to Ukraine, although we we have that in in Western Europe. the The usual argument is we need it for our own defense. We need uh, right. <laughs> large land armies to defend ourselves. And my question then is always, but against whom? Yeah, of you know, G Germany does Germany really need that much defense against France and and Poland and um, the obvious reasons that we have these large land armies and we have ammunition here and we have, uh, um, uh, you know, the uh, artillery systems here and the, uh, the the missiles and so on is to fend, defend ourselves against uh, Russia. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there's much uh, fear here of, uh, I don't know, a Chinese or uh, Iranian landing operation in Europe that right. we need to defend ourselves. So. Uh, so, but there's already a war in Europe uh, against Russia going on, and, and there's no reason why we should not, um, you know, make the uh, the weapons that we have do what they were built to do, namely to to defeat uh, the Russian army. And the and the third um, strategic conclusion that is still missing for me here is, um, and I may have mentioned that already in a previous interview with you. Um, I've published on this is also that we have our own national interests that are violated in Ukraine on the territory of Ukraine by Russia. 
the nuclear power plants um, uh, need to be protected in Ukraine. That is our own national interest, not to to um, uh, to help the Ukrainians, but to to make our own uh, countries safer. Mm-hmm. Um, there are the missile attacks on Kiev, um, including the embassy districts of Kiev. Um, we need to protect our own diplomats, our own other representatives, uh, official representatives that we have in Kiev, and we have the the uh, the technology to do that. We have the air defense systems, and we have a national interest in the protection of, for instance, the grain transportation system. Right. I was just going to say, yeah. Yeah. So that is also our interest, because if the uh, uh, if uh, food prices are high on the world market, that is something that concerns our own national interests in multiple ways. Um, it's not mm-hmm. only about prices for food in, in the supermarket, but it's also about um, what I would simply call hunger migration from Africa and and the Near East to um, to Europe, which is one of the major major topics in in domestic uh, politics in in Europe today. So we have our own interest here to um, uh, secure Ukraine's uh, export of um, foods, and and we should use our own our own armies to protect our own national interests. Because that's why they exist, these armies, and it's about our, our own safety, our own security, our health, our own lives, and, uh, and there's no reason why we uh, should not use um, the uh, the air force uh, air forces that we have, the air defense we have to protect on national interest. So so these conclusions are yet missing. I hope we will get um, to these three conclusions at some point that we will impose secondary sanctions. We will uh, give basically more of our own armies to Ukraine and that we will start defending national interests of Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's always striking, um, you know, when when you think about we have all these, I mean, the, the discussions even last year were going on were just uh, ridiculous, you know, about, well, well, should we send, you know, the leopard tanks or the or the uh, I think it's called the Taurus um, uh, cruise missiles from Germany, which is the kind of the equivalent of the storm of the French and British storm shadows. And it's like, yeah, well, who else are you going to use these? I mean, are you going to you're going to strike Belgium or something? I mean, it's just it was it was just ludicrous. Um Andres, let me ask you a little bit about Ukraine. You're 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 an expert on on Ukraine. I'm sure you follow uh, the politics there very closely. Um, the very recent headline was that um, Zelensky got rid of Zaluzhny, and the kind of reporting on this put a lot of emphasis on the uh, recruiting difficulties in the Ukrainian army. The fact that apparently a lot of the troops that are on the front line are not being rotated out enough. Um, and obviously after, you know, a couple of years of very intense combat, uh, the, the troops are are mentally and physically, um, exhausted, but give, give us your sense of, uh, what was, what was behind that decision? I mean, is it really a kind of a disagreement over kind of, it seems to me that that's, that's too narrow, uh, an explanation of, of what's going on here. That's, it's really just about kind of the inner administration of the, of the armed forces. Um, was it also the fact that Zaluzhny maybe piped up too much, you know, with that economist interview he gave a couple of months ago where he, he described the war as a stalemate? 
Um, what's your sense of why why Zelensky did what he did in the last couple of weeks? Well, first of all, um, I've been in Ukraine for over 20 years. And if you look on the pre-war history before 2014, large invasion history of Ukraine, and if you follow domestic affairs in Ukraine over the last 30 years, you will not be that surprised about these sort of quarrels within the same political camp, within uh, basically the same leadership. Uh, I remember, for instance, uh, the quarrels between Yushchenko and Timoshenko. Unfortunately, there is a certain uh, trait here in this sort of Ukrainian, slightly anarchic political culture that um, seems to um, further such uh, divisions within the same political camp. So it's not only uh, uh, political division between different political camps, but basically within the same political camp, there's a lot of competition and um, a lot of personalities that do not who do not get along with each other, and then this becomes a, a political. Um, issue. So um, if you look at, you know, if you see it in the sort of historical context, this um, fallout between Zelensky and Zaluzhny is not so untypical, actually. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing here is that uh, obviously the tension in such times of an existential war against an enemy who is basically engaged in genocide against your nation Obviously, the tensions are very high within the political leadership, within also the military leadership. I also suspect that there is much more conflict within the different generals in the Ukrainian military leadership that we get to know of, um, and also between the political leadership and the military leadership. And this has now led to this dismissal of Zaluzhny, which uh, from the outside, of course, simply looks paradoxical, mm -hmm. because Zaluzhny um, has a very good reputation, he's very popular, he's said to be a, a good uh, commander, also a good strategist. I also know of um, military experts who have a very high opinion of him. And the third factor here is uh, apparently that there is um, some problem with the subordination, and that perhaps Zaluzhny has gone with his um, appeals to the international community, like in the Economist article too far, far, or that he has not sufficiently coordinated that with the political leadership going here um, by him on his own. And, um, and he's a soldier, so mm -hmm. he's not a politician. So he's supposed to follow orders uh, of the uh, Supreme Commander, who is uh, Volodymyr Zelensky as the as the president. So, um, um, I don't have any additional information about what is going on in um, Ukraine's leadership um, and what the anim animosities, the concrete animosities are about. But if you see it in this sort of comparative context um, of this uh, very existential war in the historical context of uh, traditional Ukrainian disunity, um, uh, within this, within the same political camp, and also um, against the background of Zaluzhny's forays into international media, 
it doesn't look that surprising, actually. It's more like something that uh, is almost uh, the rule uh, rather than an exception. Mm-hmm. And and what about what about Ukrainian society um, to the extent that, that you know that the, the one can one can judge that um, has it maintained its its cohesion? Is it starting to fray? Um, what's your what's your sense of that? Again, there has been always since Zelensky became president, and also after um, the large scale start of the large scale invasion in two thousand twenty two a lot of uh, uh, debate in Ukraine and a lot of opposition. The main opposition force is uh, the party uh, of the former president uh, of Ukraine, Petro Poroshenko, the European Solidarity Party, but also other political groupings, intellectuals uh, that are uh, that were opposed to Zelensky um, before uh, the large-scale invasion that criticized him when the large-scale invasion began and that continue um, criticizing him today and and now, especially in connection with uh, uh, the dismissal of Zaluzhny. So um, there is intense political debate. It, Ukraine is a, is a democracy and a pluralistic society. Um, and even though some of the media are sort of captured either by the state or by, um, uh, by oligarchs still, um, in one way or another, not officially anymore, um, there is pluralism. It's um, uh, mm-hmm. it's not a, a monolithic um, society. Um, I don't think it, there is real fraction in society. Um, there was never this sort of uh, uh, disunity after the Euromaidan uh, revolution in 2014. Actually, you know, that is an old argument that Putin has unified uh, the Ukrainian nation. The mm-hmm. annexation of Crimea already and then the um, the start of the covert uh, invasion of eastern Ukraine in April 2014 has then led actually to a consolidation of the Ukrainian nation, also of the political elite um, that has accelerated since 2022 so um i don't i wouldn't uh, talk of a fraction here the the it, the debate is intense many are very disappointed about um, the dismissal of zaluzhny but i don't think that translates into some sort of uh, fundamental disunity or civil conflict or something like that mm-hmm. okay well that's that's uh, reassuring <laughs> um Let's let's move to the to the U.S., uh, Andreas. So obviously the the election is coming up in November. Um, there's a lot of a kind of uh, anxious talk about you know what a what a second Trump presidency um, could mean. Just the other day, he uh, I think it was at a rally in I think it was in Nevada. I'm not sure, but um, Trump made this sort of throwaway comment as he usually does about um, the fact that not only would he not defend um, NATO allies, if uh, the NATO allies that don't pay their bills, as he put it, uh, if if Russia were to um, you know get some other new ideas, uh, but he would actively encourage them to do so. Now you know this is very much in the Trumpian style, but obviously it gets you know gets people um, concerned. Uh, it seems to me that that uh, there there are two two things one can point out here. First of all, one can criticize the Biden administration. For as as we as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, um, ultimately taking a very 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 cautious approach 
um, really drip feeding a lot of the weapons platforms that we ended up giving them. In the beginning, it was like, oh, we can't give them tanks because that's a that's an escalation. We can't give them uh, ATACMs because they might hit into Russia. Uh, we can't give them F-16s because they would come too late, blah, blah, blah. We ended up giving all of that, but late and in insufficient quantities. So there's there's that. There's the other point, though, which I think um, is sometimes forgotten, which is that if you look at the you know, course of the last 20, 30 years of U.S. foreign policy, there's been actually a lot of continuity. Um, and it seems to me that there, you know, something like that could play out again here, even with someone as eccentric and as um, unusual, let's say, as, as Trump. But, but how do you see, how concerned are you by the possible return of Trump to the White House? I haven't been to the States. I've lived in the States uh, for a while in California and Massachusetts, but I haven't been for a long time now to the States and I wouldn't know so much about the uh, domestic politics of it. But I would agree with you that at the end of the day, I think there are larger uh, tendencies and larger continuities that even um, Trump as a as president would have to follow and that he cannot go against the, the you know the, the these overall moods as long as let's say the support for Ukraine in that population in say um I think Trump also have to um somehow uh, consider so um it's actually surprising now that he um, that he is sabotaging um, this help to the degree that he does because I would think that is all risky for him uh, for the election uh, because then um, this becomes an election issue, which is very untypical. Uh, actually, in elections, usually domestic uh, affairs play a dominant role, uh, like taxes and performance, and uh, um, now also identity issues, um, immigration, and so on. Um, and now, uh, what may happen actually if this um, um this uh, approach by um, continues maybe ukraine could actually be the support for ukraine could become a major topic that i think would damage then most, um, re-election chance so um i would think that eventually the americans will come uh, around that you know it reminds me a little bit of this old uh, Winston Churchill that the Americans will always do the right thing after they've tried uh, all the other um, uh, um, uh, I don't remember it uh, word by word. Right, after they've done everything else basically. Yeah, yeah. so mm-hmm. um, I would hope that uh, things will be uh, resolved, this patch uh, will be approved and um, even if Trump becomes president, he cannot uh, go against the grain of, uh, of of public opinion. What I'm more worried about, but again, that would be rather something to ask uh, American experts uh, or those who live in in the U.S. is uh, domestic instability in in the U.S. that could then um, simply U.S. from any larger foreign political activity because it will be so absorbed by its own problems in Washington and in domestic affairs if there is uh, um, a tension and uh, if Trump then polarizes society to a degree that 
the U.S. basically becomes uh, unable to coherently on the international stage. So that is, that is of course something that uh, that would be very risky for for Europe, for Taiwan, for um, the other um, regions and nations of the world. If the U.S. basically uh, leaves the international international stage and for a while, and then um, let's the uh, revisionist players to to do to play their games. So this is um, something that I'm worried about. But maybe this is an overdrawn uh, concern. Um, maybe, maybe the institutions are strong enough in the U.S. to um, to provide stability um, on the international arena. Uh, but I'm I'm worried by this high polarization that we now see in uh, the U.S. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Andres, we're coming towards the end. I wanna I wanna end with your thoughts on Russia itself, on how this uh, the war is transforming Russia, and in particular, I wanted to ask you about something that that caught my attention in the reporting on the the Tucker Carlson interview. I didn't actually watch it, but um, but one of the things that uh, apparently Putin mentioned. And which has clearly been on his mind for for at least the last couple of years, and you really get the sense when he talks about this stuff that you know this is a this is an elderly man who is concerned and is very much aware of the fact that he's he's dying, right? He's he's the end is coming for him, and he's he's very concerned about his place in history and about how much time he has left. And um, in a curious kind of way, you know, people often say that uh, as you age, you, you kind of mellow out. But in his case, it's actually the opposite. He's becoming more radical as he's approaching the end, precisely because I think he's he's very much aware of the fact that time is time is running out. But he, he makes he, he make he made all these very uh, curious points about the fact that, you know, Ukraine has never really been a real country. It's kind of an invent. It's, it can, it's kind of an artifice of uh, of history, partly of the um the kind of machinations of the Austro-Hungarian general staff, interestingly, to go back to our World War I uh, point earlier, that, you know, um, the, the Austrian-Hungarians kind of tried to invent a Ukrainian identity so that these people wouldn't feel Russian, et cetera, et cetera. Then there's also, of course, Lenin's um, role in all this and, and, the, and the end of the Soviet Union. But all this, all this kind of uh, obsession with, with history... I'm curious what you think about, you know, what effect this is having on Russian society. If we just abstract from Putin as an, as the individual for a moment, because he will eventually leave the stage. But what is this doing to the next generation of young Russians, you know, who are being brought up in, in this environment where, um, you know, there's all this talk about the, all the historical wrongs that Russia suffered and all this land that they need to reconquer, et cetera. I mean, this is straight out of the you know early twentieth century. But you know, what is this doing to the to to Russian society as a whole? Do you think? Um, let me first return to what uh, you mentioned uh, about this historical discourse and the curious um, emphasis that uh, Putin is making here on history. I think which also by the main commentators in the West. Uh, how important uh, history is for uh, Putin and that the history that he's telling here uh, is basically happening, or that he's talking about is happening before the foundation of NATO in 1949 and before the Eastern enlargement of uh, NATO, the first Eastern enlargement of NATO in 2004. 
So I, that should be noted by, by people that, um, whereas in the West, uh, I think the dominant uh, discourse for apologizing for um, Putin's war is about uh, the most recent history, basically the last 20 years and NATO Eastern enlargement. The um, history that Putin is interested is, uh, you know, actually much further away. And um, yeah. one of the bizarre things here is that he's accusing uh, Lenin of creating um, Ukraine at, at the same time at which um, uh, the course of Lenin is still uh, on the Red Square in, in mm -hmm. Moscow and can be still, um, uh, you know, attended and, and, and looked at. Um, Lenin is not on Independence Square in Kiev, as you would expect from his... <laughs> right, it should be the other way around, yeah. From his uh, uh, strange uh, narrative. I mean, this is all um, so co so contradictory. So I'm actually, I wonder how, how serious um, Russians actually can take this, this sort of uh, narrative uh, that goes back to the Middle Ages and then tells these stories and um, whether they really believe in all this. All of this. The strangest aspect here uh, of this interview, uh, which basically repeated uh, argument that um, Putin has made a couple of years ago in an article for the National Interest, is his accusation of Poland um, in triggering World War II. Um, and um, this almost apology of Hitler, um, who had no other choice than to react to the Polish uh, provocations or to, uh, uh, you know, to implement plans um, in a violent, in a military way, because um, Poland was so uncooperative. Um, mm -hmm. So that is, a, I can't really imagine Russians are buying this, because that, that sort of apology for for Hitler is really strange to me. Uh, you know, this is, yeah. that was already yeah. strange a couple of years ago, and now he re repeats that again. And, uh, I, I wonder how seriously that that, uh, that is taken. Um, so um, the other problem here is, of course, that between the lines, uh, Putin uh, is, is, of course, uh, also talking here about his own um, invasion of Ukraine and Implicitly, he is comparing Hitler's invasion against uh, an uncooperative uh, Poland with his own invasion <laughs> yeah. of Ukraine, uh, of an uh, uncooperative Ukraine, and right. Um, right. sort of undercuts the whole um, um, narrative of uh, denazification and so on, and is actually um, a self-goal and uh, I can't really believe that uh, that Russians are, are buying these um, uh, these fairy tales, fairy tales, basically about um, uh, about Ukraine. So um, uh, I haven't been to uh, to Russia for the last uh, ten years, so I wouldn't make him any any larger judgments about uh, what what Russians really really think and why they still support the war. If we believe the um, uh, the polls, for instance, by the Levada Center. Is it really uh, because they believe that um, that there's no Ukraine and uh, Ukrainians, the Ukrainian state need, state needs to be um, destroyed, and there are all these historical reasons why Russia is um, justified to do that? Um, 
maybe that is a, a major factor here, but it's it's also bizarre. It all sounds so bizarre that mm. uh, I would think that everybody who um, who is a bit more interested in history um, should be skeptical about this um, this narrative of Putin. Yes, absolutely. Well, Andres, we'll we'll have to leave it there. This has been a terrific uh, discussion and overview of where we where we stand um, at the two year mark. Um, hopefully, we won't have to repeat this for many many more years in the future. But uh, you know, this is this has been really really interesting. I want to uh, tell my listeners once again where they can find you. Uh, first of all, the list of your publications is on the website of the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, and of course, you're also very active on Twitter slash X, uh, at Umland Andreas is where they can find you there. Uh, Andreas, as always, terrific talking to you. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks a lot. Uh, very good questions. And uh, I enjoyed that and will be happy to speak again whenever. Mm-hmm.